Podcast One presents Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews, the ultimate insider's scoop on the best new books. Every week, Kirkus brings you author interviews, recommendations from the bestseller lists, and insights into books that are not yet on your radar. Hi, I'm Megan LaBreeze, editor-at-large of Kirkus Reviews. Welcome to another episode of Fully Booked. Thank you so much for joining us. My guest today is Ling Ma, author of Bliss Montage, out today from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Kirkus calls this collection of short stories from the author of the novel Severance, which, by the way, was the winner of the 2018 Kirkus Prize for Fiction, haunting and artful. I'd add brave and laugh-out-loud funny in parts and many other adjectives. The eight stories in this fantastic collection are definitely in sync with Severance, which I'd call apocalyptic satire, among other things. Ma is a master of genre, basically, to the point at which she can combine them and build on them in a way that's fresh and compelling. In Bliss Montage, she incorporates elements of the fantastic, but grounds them in a reality that is more recognizably our own. That is also a line from Kirkus's starred review of Bliss Montage, and here's a bit more that gets into specific stories, starting with the opener, Los Angeles. Here we go. The narrator of Los Angeles lives with her husband, their children, and the children's au pairs in the east and west wings of their home. Her hundred ex-boyfriends live in the largest but ugliest wing. While the narrator takes these past lovers on outings to Moonjuice and LACMA, the husband works at an investment firm. The husband's dialogue is rendered in dollar signs. This piece feels uncanny in the Freudian sense, as if it is peopled not by actual humans, but by ghosts or automata. The ideas of home and belonging recur throughout the collection. In returning, the narrator meets the man who will become her husband when they are both on a panel for immigrant authors. A trip to his native country to participate in a festival, a trip that is an attempt to salvage their marriage, ends in a macabre, desperate rite. Ma also writes about motherhood and academic life and abusive relationships. These are rich themes, and the author explores them with the logic of dreams. Ling Ma is a writer hailing from Fujian, Utah, Kansas. She is the author of the novel Severance, as mentioned, which in addition to receiving the Kirkus Prize also won her a Whiting Award and the New York Public Library Young Lions Fiction Award. She lives in Chicago with her family. After the break, Ling Ma joins us from Chicago to discuss Bliss Montage. Davide Tarsitano is the author of The Tooth Fairy. We meet Johnny Hawk tied to a dentist's chair in a basement. From there, we slowly untangle his wife's affair with another man, his road trip out to Los Angeles, and his meeting with dentist Wendy Jag. It's not long after that Johnny starts to sense Wendy is not all she seems, and something darker is emerging between them. Our review called it, quote, a spooky, strange, and enjoyable supernatural novel, end quote. In this sponsored interview, we'll speak with Davide about his book. My name is Paola, and I work in the indie department. Hi, Davide. Thank you so much for joining us on Fully Booked. Hi, Paula. Thank you very much for having me. So while this is your first novel, you have a long history with horror, starting with discovering the Goosebump series by Earl Stein as a child. What draws you to the genre? And were there any favorites that served as inspiration for The Tooth Fairy? So yeah, that's correct. Goosebumps was my very first approach with horror literature in general. Uh, I remember being just a 
10 year old boy and I was in a bookstore with my dad and I just saw this really cool cover super colorful slightly spooky so I asked permission to my dad to buy it yeah that just kind of opened say a whole world that escalated quite quickly in a few years I was already reading Stephen King Desperation by Stephen King was actually my real first let's say adult reading for horror novels during my let's say teenage years I you know just started writing some short stories for myself and it got more serious with the years as you know I was refining my craft to the point where a couple of years ago I just had this idea while I was sitting on a dentist chair and you know I just thought about how vulnerable we are when we're sitting on a dental chair and I just thought what if you know my dentist is a psycho what what she could do to me or what he could do to me that idea just clicked with some other concept and that's how the tooth fairy was born so we get a lot of backstory for Wendy, which makes it apparent that she's not a two-dimensional cartoon bad guy. What do you feel sets her apart as a horror villain? For me, the way the antagonist is portrayed in this novel is just another example on how people are just real people. They're not just like robots. They often don't follow a script. They're just human beings. And in, in the case of Wendy, lack of love and constant presence of abuse, uh, neglect and trauma suffered during the childhood. That's what really triggered this darkness that lives inside her. And that's basically, I think, what makes the character three-dimensional, like you, like you mentioned. Given your familiarity with horror, did you find anything in the book trickier to pull off while you were writing it? Or did it feel more like working with an old friend, so to speak? Some aspects, it was um, tricky for me to find the right pace of the book, the narration and the dialogues. And, you know, just the action of the book is proportioned between the chapters. That's what ultimately builds the pace. So that technicality was a little bit tricky for me to find. But I kind of took that as a learn-as-we-go approach. The easiest part for me was to develop the characters. I, I normally don't plot. So my stories don't have a predetermined plot. I don't know how the story is going to end. That's what makes it fun for me. For me, the characters initially were just like shapeless shadows that I got to know while I was writing the story. And that was definitely the easiest and the most fun part. Do you think you'll continue to write horror as you go on? Or are you looking in other directions? Yeah, it's uh, another really good one. I am actually writing my second horror novel right now, but I definitely have so many ideas on dystopian as well. Dystopian is also another of um, my favorite ones. The dystopian genre is really attractive to me for the simple reason of I see a dystopian novel as the perfect set for second chances. It's not really about how the world is ending or what kind of catastrophe is afflicting the world. It's more about the choices that we have when we are in that situation when we almost push a reset button, right? And uh, you have these endless possibilities in front of you. And it's always been a question that has intrigued me. Will we do everything the same? What will we change? So to me, it's just the perfect setting for you know that kind of exploration. If you're just joining us on the podcast, The Tooth Fairy is available on Amazon in hardcover, paperback, and Kindle. Welcome, Ling, to Fully Booked. Thank you so much for joining me today. 
And thank you for having me, Megan. I'm absolutely thrilled. I saw you from afar once. It was in Texas in 2018 when you won the Kirkus Prize for Fiction. Oh, yeah, I remember. Was it at the library? It was a very yeah. strange time. <laughs> it was a strange time. It was a strange part of the library. And I remember being near to you when it was announced that you won. And um, you seemed, in a word, surprised. Uh, I was. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was that night like for you? Um, I think I felt a little bit uh, disembodied. <laughs> and I... I remember it didn't, I, I was very happy to have mm. one, but I also felt, I remember afterwards walking, just like going back to the hotel and I was wearing really this heavy, because I'm, I live in Chicago. So I was, I had this like heavy puffer coat and it was like, <laughs> you know, 70 degree weather. Also, I remember when we were in that time when we were in Texas, they were having some water issues. The water yeah. was overflowing. Yes. And so we weren't allowed to drink tap water. And so no. everywhere in the streets, you would see these um, trash bins just piled up with like water bottles. And <laughs> <laughs> and it felt a little apocalyptic, dare I say. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Please do. But I remember um, after the ceremony, uh, after I dropped everything off in my hotel and uh, just walking around Austin like late at night. And it was really, yeah, it was really nice to be there. But I just, just the stacks of empty water bottles and having to buy more water bottles because you couldn't really brush your teeth with it or really yeah. do anything with the tap water. Yeah, very surreal. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, it was. And, it, and for me too. And it's so funny because I had not actively remembered the detail of the water bottles, but you said it and it just like came flooding back, like the recognition of the strangeness of it came flooding back to me too. Mm -hmm. Thank you for reuniting me with that part of that memory. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it feels like we're uh, living in the future already. <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, it does. So, of course, you won the Kirkus Prize for Severance, which was a novel. Um, it is my understanding that Severance started out as a short story story. Is that correct? Yeah, I think I started out trying to write a short story. It's just a fun apocalyptic uh, thing. Uh, I didn't think I would be in it for a novel just because I didn't ever see myself writing an apocalyptic novel. <laughs> I didn't think I could sustain it and the world building and everything. It just seemed like it was challenging. So I thought, well, a short story is about where what I can do. And uh, of course, it turned, you know, it became much longer and became a novel eventually. It's really interesting to me because it's like, you know, okay, this is like a big gooey thought I have that maybe we could revisit when it's more like shaped towards the end uh -huh. of the conversation. But I like, like gooey. Oh, Sorry. okay. <laughs> so like I would say, you know, as your fan, I think that you are really fierce as a fiction writer on like themes of like conformity and iconoclasm or like expectations, comma, to subvert or not subvert. And you make me see as your reader, you know, the choices characters make you know, you, they have bodies, they have backgrounds, they are put into boxes, they either break free, but like once you, once you break beyond the bounds of the box, you're kind of in another box, right? You're in the rebel box to a certain extent. Yeah. Anyway, I see like 
in my weird brain, all of these boxes, you know, like a transparency, like you used to see in high school, you know, with like the overhead projector, you know, Mm -hmm. like all of these boxes kind of floating on over each other and the rules of each one, you know, applying Mm -hmm. or being subverted and see what I mean? Gooey. Yeah. You know, I think I know uh, just going off of that about sort of boxes and compartmentalization. I actually, when I'm writing, I do think a lot about sort of narrative tropes of like the genre. So um, writing Severance, a lot of it was sort of playing with what was already established in the zombie apocalypse canon. Yeah. (laughs) And sort of uh, and trying to figure out what I wanted to keep and what I wanted to subvert of of that genre, really. And I think about that actually a lot in all my writing. What am I trying to sort of keep of the genre? What have I seen before? What do I want to kind of cross uh, in some way? Yeah, I've consumed. You know, I'm a ever since I was a kid, I uh, just consumed a lot of. A lot of books, a lot of movies, a lot of TV shows. Yeah, there's there's a knowledge of all of that that comes in handy. <laughs> right, right. It's all these points of reference. I'm now it is escaping me. It might be in the first story, the opening story of this collection, Los Angeles, where the narrator, I think she met her husband on loweredexpectations.com or something like that. (laughs) And she's talking about um, filling out a dating profile. And it's like, my favorite music was Cat Power. My favorite this was that. And like, I put in all the signify, like these signals, you know, Mm. these reference points that we may meet at to decide, you know, that help us identify one another. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so we're, I think we're probably going to stay gooey, Ling, if you don't mind. Okay. <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> okay. So, oh, but as a little sidebar, this is a little more concrete question. Um, so Bliss Montage. Well, mm-hmm. okay. Step it back from there. First mm-hmm. of all, just do it. Let's do it broad. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about this story collection? Yeah. This Bliss Montage is a collection of stories that are both realist and fantastical. I often feel like I'm working in the horror genre or at least in the on the outskirts of the horror genre and you know that genre is the realm of the psychological and it was important to me that no matter how outlandish the premise uh, of the story that they felt emotionally anchored in some way. And that was my approach. I wrote most of these stories. I want to most of these stories um within the first year of the pandemic. And so it really felt like I wrote them in hibernation in some way. Many of them came from dreams. And, you know, some of these stories were existed as sort of scraps or little scenes I had in my files for years, but I couldn't figure out how to work. And then I just kind of within, yeah, 2020 was able to flesh them out and put them together. I some of these stories I just needed like the critical distance of time to yeah. be able to understand how to uh, how to write them. Hmm. Your editor is Jenna Johnson, right? Yes, that's correct. Um, one of the best in my estimation. What's your working relationship with Jenna like? You know, how does she help tease out the best? I like that Jenna's really open to anything and she's kind of unfazed if, you know... <laughs> If I give her a story about a pregnant woman, and mm. there's a fetal arm coming out of her. Um, and she's 
she tends to be unfazed. I think she's a very intuitive editor. Mm. I tend to keep things close to me until I feel like the draft is at a point where it's close to being done. Maybe it's like at 75%, 80%. And I just want to step away from it. Um, And a lot has been sort of already done to my satisfaction, but I know the project itself isn't fully there yet. That's around the time when I like to show Jenna something and she gives me good feedback. I feel like I I also like hanging out with her. I'm always a little bit weary because I feel like I really enjoy my spending time with her, but I also feel like, should I be friends with my editor because... Will she then give me too many compliments? (laughs) Because I don't want like, I want like tough, I want the tough critique. Yeah. (laughs) I want like the, like the just raw honesty from a reader um, and from my editor. So uh, yeah, anyways, that's my, (laughs) (laughs) that's that's our relationship. I'm, I'm thrilled to know that. That is very interesting to me. Um, occupational hazard, you know, you might actually develop, you know, a kind of relationship that, that pushes you out of that, that pocket where you want to be, where you're going to get the, the brave critique. Because like, you know, when, as a reader, like, I feel like you are a brave writer. I mean, like, there's like a fearlessness on display. Like you, like some of these are just so sharp, you know, I have one son and one daughter, one gangbangingly after the other. Hello. With each and every passing year, the back wing shrinks and shrivels up, an old man's balls gradually retracting into his body. Those are two lines from that first story I mentioned, Los Angeles. And both of those, I was just like, I just, I don't even know if I wrote anything substan- substantive in the margins. I think I just put like a big purple pen slash. Like, yes, yes. I'm so happy to see these sentences. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I have to say, I didn't really plan on being a fiction writer, Mm. or I always wanted to write fiction. um, And I always did write fiction sort of secretly and sort of little dribs and drabs there and here and there. But it wasn't until I was 30 that I went and did my MFA to complete the novel Severance. But there's a sense, at least to me, that I wasn't supposed to, this is something that I wasn't really supposed to do. So therefore, I don't really have that much to lose in some way. Uh, Like this was a second, it was an unplanned and sort of second stage of my life Mm -hmm. in some way. And I'm sure maybe to some listeners, it's a little bit ridiculous because 30 is also still young. But to me, I thought, you know, Mm. (laughs) it just felt like being a fiction writer was something that I couldn't really let myself be, but then because I wasn't really having much of a career, I just thought, well, I have nothing to lose and I'll write fiction. And I wonder if sometimes if that sort of fearlessness if that you mentioned has yeah. something to do with, oh, well, I don't really have that much to lose. But, you know, I hope I don't lose that sense of risk-taking I as uh, there was a lot of attention Uh, given to severance. And I think, especially there was a second wave of attention to severance during, at the start of the pandemic. And I think that was around the time I was writing Bliss Montage. And between the lockdowns and that second wave of attention, I think it drove me a little bit further inward. (laughs) Mm. 
And so I did feel like um, I was writing these stories in hibernation in some way. Uh, I identify with what you said. I like, who the hell am I to be talking to you, right? Like, by what rights am I an interviewer of authors on this podcast, on this microphone, you know? So I kind of hope that I will continue to take some risks too. And I think that that was one of the pleasures of my 30s was really just dipping a toe in the water of that because I had a lot of ideas about who and what I was supposed to be. Didn't really work out for me. (laughs) So since, we, since we've since dug into Los Angeles a little bit, let's scratch at the dirt a little bit more together. Um, this is a sto- one of the stories, one of many of the stories in the collection that's told um, in the first person. I'm interested in, regarding perspective, what are your particular concerns when you're writing in first person? Like, what, what does it take to pull it off by your estimation? I love writing in first person. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I... You know what? I'm not sure. It comes, first person seems a little bit more natural to me. Mm. Part of this is because um, I've been journaling since I was in third grade. (laughs) And uh, I don't want to, I don't want people to mistake my fiction and say like, oh, this is her journaling voice. It's not, but I'm in that mode. I'm very comfortable. Mm. I think in part because I've been journaling every couple of days since almost all of my life. I guess you kind of develop a ear for it. You know, you understand when something sounds maybe inauthentic or Mm. tinny. And I am concerned with how the voice, first person voice is supposed to move, like during times of duress, during times of like glee. I rework those sentences sort of endlessly trying to get them to the point where the voice sounds uh, right. And I'm not sure. I wish I had something more instructive to say other than (laughs) much of it is trial and error and placing yourself in the head of the character and thinking and trying to figure out what are the details they would notice the most. Mm. Something that kind of takes me out of, you know, certain stories is when the first person character sort of, it's a, you know, moment of tension. And then the first person character just starts going into descriptions of what the room looks like (laughs) or something. And I, and um, I don't know, you just have to be very much on the ground level uh, with your characters. (laughs) This is, so good and interesting and fun and funny to me that it like this is kind of like um a piece of pizza that was eaten backwards crust first because mm-hmm. i have to ask you now like los angeles what is the story about who's speaking <laughs> <laughs> what's it about we've been talking about it but yeah. i didn't do my job yeah well i you know my point of entry into a lot of my stories tend to be fantasy so um sort of something that i some kind of wish fulfillment so I'll tell you what inspired it. Um, okay. It's not fully in the story, but I think it also kind of is. Okay. Well, there was a time in my life where I was dating a bunch of like creative types. Um, uh. And I think part of the reason I was, do- you know, musicians and uh, other writers and so forth, yeah. I think th- I was drawn to dating them because I was trying to figure out how they made it work. Like, how do you sustain your life as like a drummer, <laughs> your creative life as a drummer, but also like pay the bills? Um, what I realized is nobody makes it work. Like nobody <laughs> is able to make it work. Um, and so 
I guess part of the fit, I was thinking, well, what if there's like an arts colony? And I think this was a dream actually that came to me. Like, what if there's an arts colony, but it's like, but I'm married in the dream. I was this wife who was married to like some rich guy. And then I was able to (laughs) to finance all of these ex-boyfriends, like artistic (laughs) projects. And so it was like, kind of like, I don't know, like a (laughs) wife artist colony situation and we were it was set in LA and we were we could like do our art but then also like um eat well (laughs) and like shop at Barney's back when Barney's still existed (laughs) another casualty of the pandemic but so that's where I started is um and uh that's not fully in there the artist part isn't quite in there. It ended up being a story about a woman living with her ex-boyfriends and her husband in their mansion. I didn't quite understand. It took me a while to understand why she was living with her exes. And I think ultimately the past comes back to sort of haunt her in some way, or like a suppressed part of her past comes to haunt her. And there's sort of this, it's, um, the story, the story kind of uh, moves towards this spurt of anger that mm. comes out. And she's actually a very angry uh, person. That was a surprise to me. I didn't know this was a story that was going to sort of go towards sort of this spurt of anger and about this, uh, basically this uh, abusive ex in her past. And it's one of two stories. The other is Yeti Lovemaking mm. that I had written and finished like before 2020. But I started writing, there was something about the story Los Angeles that drew me back. And so I started writing this story called Oranges, which is the next, the second story in the collection. Um, And I see the two as this pairing. Oranges is also about an abusive ex. But one story is maybe a fantastical take. And the other story is more of a realist, sort of a more rooted in realism. And I also saw Oranges as, in a way, a kind of psychic continuation of Los Angeles um, in which she follows her ex uh, back to his home. Um, I, yeah, so I guess, I don't know if I answered that question of what is a story about, I guess, reckoning I, with I abuse think- from the, in the past in some way. Yeah. I, I'm surely delighted by the answer, whether, whether or not we, we've gotten it right. I think, like, is there a correct? I don't know. But thank you for that. And thank you for your generosity with me on that topic. Um, I think this is probably the point in the program where it is 15 minutes overdue to ask the question, what is a bliss montage? Well, yeah, a bliss montage, uh, it's a term in film studies. I think it's coined by the scholar Janine Basinger. And it refers to um, sort of this edited sequence that shows the character going on sort of a joy spree. So um, I guess a simple, maybe a simple example of that would be to take a movie that I watched a lot as a kid, uh, Home Alone 2, yes. <laughs> Lost in New York. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, when Kevin McAllister ends up at an airport in New York. Um, and he realizes that he's alone on the in the wrong city 
but he also realizes he's in New York. That's followed by this sort of edited sequence of him just kind of blissing out around the city, like going to the top of the Empire State Building and or um, going to Chinatown and buying firecrackers. And it's set to this like music, uh, this very uh, sort of fun <laughs> music. It's a pleasure sequence, basically. I was just inspired by that idea because I feel that you know, what compels me to into any story is that sort of fantasy, is the sort of pleasure element, at least at first. And so I felt like it just seemed like it was the right title to me. Is it bliss uh, to you to write, like the actual process of it? Um, In spurts and mm. in moments it is. Yeah. The rest of the time it's just kind of feels kind of like drudgery. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, and I do, my preferred method of writing is like going for six hours mm. with breaks, of course, but like just kind of wallowing <laughs> in the story for like six hours a day, eight hours if I can pull it off. And, you know, most of that is doesn't feel great. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> it really does not feel good. Um, but there might be a moment or two where you're just like, yeah, I, I think I know what the story is about. And I did, maybe part of the reason it feels bad is because I never know where these stories are going. I don't plan out my stories. I just kind of uh, start, open it up and kind of explore the world that I'm making. I just never know what it is where the stories are going to go. It's more that I'm trying to follow an emotion or a feeling. And I have this maybe confidence that whatever this emotion or feeling that I'm following, it's going to lead me somewhere. It's going to drive the story somewhere. I, even though, you know, I, I feel pretty blind. Um, yeah. Most of the time in the moment until I at least get some kind of, cognizant shape in the early drafts I can I can then kind of understand what it's about I feel that way about tomorrow especially it just was a very odd premise um and I feel that way about returning it was a mm. very odd premise as well I didn't necessarily know what they were about but I there was a sort of a mood sort of a vibe yeah um that I was trying to capture oh I have a thousand more questions for you and very few minutes. So I will just ask my most hospitable, tried and true, trusty, musty, old finishing question, which is, Ling, is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know about Bliss Montage or any other stray thought floating around at the end of our conversation today? I don't know. I'm not, I don't think so. Yeah, <laughs> I, just want, I just hope you guys read the book and <laughs> your listeners read the book and, um, hopefully like it or hate it. Um, mm. I like extreme reactions. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I think they're going to like it, Ling. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. I did. I'm thrilled. I'm now in danger of, you know, pricing myself out of ever being any sort of, you know, editorial figure in your life because I have too many compliments for you. <laughs> I think this collection is Fantastic. And I am very excited for our listeners to pick it up. Bliss Montage by Ling Ma. Ling, thank you so much for joining me today on Fully Booked. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Megan. That was Ling Ma, author of Bliss Montage, out today from Farrar Strauss and Giroux. 
After the break, we'll ask our editors for their top picks and books for the week. You're listening to Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. This message is brought to you by Tom Pearson, author of the collection of poetry Still the Sky. Pearson's latest collection of poetry explores popular Greek myths and the unexplored spaces between the written word and visual art. Pearson's writing, filled with rich description and striking imagery, suits the subject. The many symbols and themes explored within are powerful and work on an almost subliminal level as the reader travels further into the book. Additionally, his subtle use of varied sensory descriptors throughout makes the reading experience mesmeric and enveloping. Pearson's meticulous choice of words and his innate sense of narrative rhythm make for an unarguably unique experience. Kirkus Reviews said, quote, The fusion of poetry and art makes this speculative trip through Greek myth a highly memorable experience, end quote. Readers can find Still the Sky, along with Tom Pearson's other poetry collection, The Sandpiper's Spell, on his website at tompearsonnyc.com. Victoria Lilienthal is the author of The Tea Room, her debut novel. Massage therapist Vera West is having a steamy relationship with her massage instructor, Ernesto Archer, who is also her business partner. The catch is that Ernesto is married, and Vera's promotion to business partner should have been for his wife, Jean. As Vera's entanglement with Ernesto becomes messier, she must reclaim her independence with help from clients and a mysterious goddess. Our review called it, quote, a raucous, entertaining, new-age erotic yarn, by turns funny and soulful, end quote. In the sponsored interview, we'll speak with Victoria about her book. My name is Paula, and I work in the indie department. Hi, Victoria. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Hi, Paula. Thank you for having me. So you've expressed a fascination with symbols and myths. Did any come to mind in particular while you were writing this book? I'm so glad you asked that question. Yes, absolutely. Right away, the goddess was probably the biggest symbol. I mean, that was the launching point for the entire book. It's the goddess White Tara. She's the goddess of compassion, this mystical entity that leads Vera along through the entire body of the storyline. Tara sprung from a tear on a god's cheek when he looked down at the world after he cleaned out all the realms and the hell realms. And he looked down and he saw that mankind had just done a really good job of messing it up again. He wept and the goddess Tara sprung from his cheek and she became the mother of all Buddhas and the goddess of compassion. This is within Tibetan mysticism. I'm not a, a scholar of Tibetan mysticism, but I love that story. So I really wanted to include her in this book. The title of the book, The Tea Room, refers to the cottage Vera rents from Ernesto, where many of their exchanges take place. She notes in narration that the T stands for transformation. What kind of transformation do you think Vera undergoes over the course of the story? So the tea room is this place where she goes to work with clients. But in fact, what she's really learning how to do is take charge of her own self. Even though she thinks that her role as a healer is about healing others, it has nothing really to do with that. Vera needs to do her own healing. She has to take that tea room home. She needs to go and transform her own life first before she can really get busy. I I think the biggest change for Vera is that she claims her honesty. And I think that big setup for her claiming her honesty actually starts right away by her daughter calling her out on having an affair with a married man. And Vera has to decide whether she's going to be an asshole or not. You know, she says if she if she lies, that makes her a total asshole. But if she admits that she's having an affair with a married man, that makes her a total asshole, too. I mean, she has a 14 year old daughter. The rest of the book is really about when she's going to be in her integrity, when she not, when she's going to be rebellious, when she not. And by the end, she's in full ownership. 
I don't know. I mean, I don't think really as a woman, you can do much better than that. Tell the truth, no matter the consequences, show up. There's an interesting dynamic between Vera and Jean, Ernesto's wife. In some ways, they're opposites. In others, a little bit similar. What do you think sets this narrative thread apart from other tales of being the other woman? I think what Jean does and what some of the other female characters do for Vera is they offer her a mirror of her own behavior. When Vera discovers that she's been on the receiving end of a ritual, I mean, that's a pretty scary idea that somebody might be actually methodically throwing some pretty bad juju at you. But Vera's been throwing some shade Jean's way as well. It's not so easy to have to digest, wow, I mean, some of my behavior is actually right in line with this other kind of behavior that's pretty scary. There are heavier aspects to the book. So Vera's moral questions, Ernesto's behavior, Jean's machinations. It's also quite a playful story. Is there a particular scene or character that you really enjoyed writing? I love writing Grace. I mean, Grace was a blast. I always imagined her as the evolved Vera, you know, the grown up. If Vera were evolved and and suddenly an aristocrat, she might evolve into somebody like Grace, who was a pretty developed soul, but who also was in full ownership of her own kind of sexual exploration in particular, you know, given the way things have been going in this country. It felt pretty good to write a book that, um, at least for my daughters and my daughter's friends and my goddaughters, that they all came back and said, yay, sex positive. Vera gets that spear in, in the book. And maybe that spear in the end is you know just about that. Just own your body, own your, your freedom. What does freedom look like? And they do a lot of talking about that. If you're just joining us on the podcast, The Tea Room is available on Amazon in paperback and Kindle. This message is brought to you by Mukana Press. The Newlyweds Window is an anthology of stories by contemporary African writers. Some of these 12 stories effectively address the shifting natures of identity and understanding across cultures. Others play with their characters' perceptions in order to reveal the deeper tensions of modern life. These and other tales are uniformly lean and precise, and the prose is exuberant or mordant depending on the story. Some manage both registers at the same time. Mukana Press sought out Africa's most promising and emerging short story writers, and the result has been The Newlyweds Window. Africa's stories have largely been relegated to themes of poverty and war, yet there is so much more brilliance, texture, and layers to these stories. This collection seeks to provide a platform for the rest of the world to become acquainted with the excellence of talent outside of the mainstream, as well as tell stories from fresh vantage points. Kirkus Reviews called it, quote, a varied but consistently satisfying sampler of emerging artists, end quote. Readers can find The Newlyweds Window on Amazon in Kindle, audiobook, paperback, and hard copy. The ultimate insider scoop on the latest books, right here on Fully Booked. We're joined now by our editors with their top picks and books for the week. We have Young Readers editors Laura Simeon and Manaz Dar, nonfiction editor Eric Liebetrau, and fiction editor Lori Muchnick. Starting with Laura, hello, Laura. What have you chosen for us this week? Hi, Megan. I've chosen Self-Made Boys, a great Gatsby remix, and it is the latest from Anna Marie McLemore, just released last week. And it's such a great book. It's a shift from their usual magical realism into 
historical fiction. Um, and it's a queer Latina version of this classic story that, you know, is widely known even by people who haven't read it. It's just part of, you know, like a, a cultural reference point. And so it's really fun the way um, they play with the story. It has um, Nicholas, Nicolas Caraveo, and he goes out to um, live near his cousin, Daisy Frabrega Caraveo, who's now going by Daisy Faye and passing as white and is sort of engaged to this, sort of engaged to be engaged to this very wealthy, also very racist white guy called Tom. Um, and Daisy sets Nicholas up in this house with a new neighbor, Jay Gatsby. So Nicholas and Jay are both trans and they're part of this queer subculture in the 1920s. And it's this book that sort of explores passing, you know, um, with when it comes to gender, um, sexuality, race, like what do you gain? And what are the costs that come from not being able to or not feeling comfortable with taking the risks um, of, of revealing who you truly are? And it's this book that it, it takes, you know, people who have always been here, but are not always written into stories. And so then there's this distorted perception about like who we are, who we were in the past and, you know, what's happening now. And um, I will say I was never assigned the great Gatsby in school and I just never got around to reading it, but I still love this book. So I don't think you need to know the great Gatsby probably you'd get more out of it even than I did if, if you had read the original, but it's just, it's perfectly paced. The language is rich and textured. It's just, it's a delight. This one sounds really amazing, Laura. And it made me think a little bit when you were talking about the issue of passing. I remember when I read The Great Gatsby years ago now, I think I stumbled upon an article that was arguing that um, Gatsby himself was possibly passing as that he was Jewish, but trying to hide that. I don't know if that's actually canon, but I just made me think of that. And I also thought of some possibly good read-alikes from uh, the manga classics line of books, which are these really amazing manga adaptations of um, classic works like um, The Scarlet Letter, Hamlet, um, Pride and Prejudice. I don't know if they've done The Great Gatsby yet, but I really hope that they do soon. Yeah, I don't I don't think I've seen that one, but they do. They have a lot of great Shakespeare and so on. So that's a good idea. Laura's pick for the week is called Self-Made Boys, A Great Gatsby Remix by Anna Marie McLemore. Thank you so much, Laura, for that pick. Next, we've got Manaz. Manaz, what have you chosen for us? I have a picture book this week called The Circles of the Sky by Carl James Mountford. And this is a book about dads, but don't worry, it's actually not, you know, framed in a super depressing way. It has a very, you know, um, uplifting framing. So it's about a fox who goes home after a night of hunting and tries to settle down to to sleep all day, but he can't because he hears the birds singing. And it's a different kind of bird song than usual, and he just can't focus and sleep. So he runs to the woods and finally comes to a clearing where there are all these tree stumps and the crows are gathered. They fly away, and the fox sees a bird lying there, not moving. And the fox observes, and he wonders how he can help. You know, he tries bringing bird a worm, he tries singing, but nothing revives bird. Um, a moth has been watching all this and tries to explain that there's nothing that the fox can do. Um, the fox still doesn't really get it, so the moth tries to use a metaphor. She explains that the sun, which the fox refers to as you know, the circle in the sky, 
goes down every day. And that even when that happens, um, the sun's light is still reflected in the moon. So even if the moon can't be with the sun, the moon always knows that the sun was once there. And the fox, who's very literal-minded, says, oh, does that mean the bird is going to wake up tomorrow? And Moth says no, and Fox becomes really upset and starts kind of yelling and just getting very frustrated. And Moth finally says, you know, no, Bird was never going to be here. Bird is dead. And, you know, Fox is sad, even though he never knew the bird. But Moth offers to accompany Fox home, and the two put Bird down among the wildflowers before they leave. And there's a lot of books on death out there, but I think this one stands out really beautifully because... In part, it's very, it's visually stunning. The illustrations have this beautiful woodcut look to them with geometric shapes and circles and lines contrasting. But I also think that the book wrestles with how to address death really well. Um, There's this desire to comfort and make things better. And the author makes it clear that sometimes it can be just as hard for the person explaining the death as it is for the person grappling with it um there's a really great line in it where moth says i was trying to be kind sad things are hard to hear they are pretty hard to say too they should be told in little pieces and so i think that that book really acknowledges that it's it's hard for somebody who's dealing with it but it's also hard for someone say a parent or a caregiver to try to explain it to somebody else um our review said of this book that it deals with quote the twin desires to mourn and to comfort and quote And I think that's a great way of putting it. You know, we have these twin impulses when someone dies. There's the feeling of wanting to grieve. And then someone who's an outsider might just want to think, well, how do I make my friend feel better? And it's really hard to balance those two needs as both Moth and Fox convey. This is a book that answers several questions. You know, what is death? What do I do about death? But also, how do I support my friend who's grappling with death? And in that way, I think it's also a really powerful book for for caregivers. I also feel like the prose is so immediate in this book. You know, it works so well with the visuals. They have a kind of poetry to the words. And there's a lot of opportunity for conversation too, because not all readers are necessarily going to agree with the part about, you know, should sad things be told in little pieces? Some people might say, no, I want to hear it all at once. And so I think that this book really lends itself to discussion, to, to talking, And there's just so many little details I love in the book, too. Um, I love that the book refers to Fox and Moth by name. So Fox and Moth are capitalized, but they also refer to the bird that way, not the dead bird or bird, but they refer to the bird as as bird. So even though the fox never knew bird when he was alive, he thinks of bird as a real person, which is a beautiful touch, I thought. Thank you, Manaz. I kind of wish I had had this book a couple weeks ago, actually, because... When we were on vacation at our lake house, there was a bird that had flown into the window and both of my nieces, eight and five, or sorry, nine and six, were quite upset about it. And, you know, I was kind of struggling with a way to, you know, explain the death and they're, they're very into nature and they're very aware of kind of the interconnectedness of nature, you know, even interspecies. Uh, So this would have been a great kind of teaching tool. We gave it like a little a little burial and um, it was pretty sweet, but it would have been nice to have some uh, something like this to kind of show them, you know, everything you described. The, the cover is beautiful. I also think I'd, I'd, I haven't gotten a chance to look inside the book, but it, I like the idea of the geometric shapes and the, yeah, the colors. It looks beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I think it would be a really great one to have on hand for yeah. kids dealing with it. 
Manaz's pick for the week is The Circles in the Sky by Carl James Mountford. Thank you, Manaz, for that choice. Next, we've got nonfiction. Eric, what's your pick? My pick is called Victory is Assured, Uncollected Writings of Stanley Crouch. Um, it's a collection by Stanley Crouch, who was an um, eminent critic and music historian, mostly best known for writing about jazz. Unfortunately, we lost him in 2020. Um, and I don't think he's as well known as he should be. He wrote probably the definitive biography of Charlie Parker about a decade ago called Kansas City Lightning, The Rise and Times of Charlie Parker. And he's also written a lot about um, all jazz figures, but especially Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, and John Coltrane. Um, I, I think he's definitely one of the most important jazz critics of the 20th century. And this collection, to anybody who's new to him, this is the perfect kind of entry point. It covers, you know, a lot of ground, not just jazz, but he also writes about film as well. But there's a really good essay about John Ford's movie, The Searchers, in here, and also some good stuff about Malcolm X. So I think anyone who's into cultural criticism, particularly music and jazz, if you haven't read Stanley Crouch, um, I would recommend starting with this. Is there anything in the book about books, Eric? I know he used to write a lot of book criticism at the Village Voice back in the 80s, 90s. That was right. really, really great also. Mm-hmm. Um, there is. There's not as much. It's mostly music and film. But there are, there's a, there's a few, few essays um, about books. But I'm glad you mentioned that because, honestly, his writing on any kind of uh, culture is, is definitely worth reading. Eric's pick for the week is Victory is Assured, Uncollected Writings of Stanley Crouch by Stanley Crouch, edited by Glenn Mott. Thank you, Eric, for that choice. Finally, we've got fiction. Lori, what have you chosen for us? I've got a really great first novel called If I Survive You by Jonathan Escoffrey. It's kind of a collection of linked stories. It really feels like a novel, unlike some collections. It's all about one family who started out in Jamaica, came to Miami to get away from political violence. It focuses largely on the youngest son, Trelawney, who in just this incredible tour de force opening story, which is called In Flux, he kind of grapples with who he is, where he's from, how to answer when people say to him, like, what are you? Because he's fairly light-skinned. He's from Jamaica. Is he, you know... A lot of people in Miami think he must be Dominican, so they don't understand why he doesn't speak Spanish. You know, then he goes to college in the Midwest where, you know, he says something like, now I'm definitely Black, you know, here in the Midwest. And just grappling with his own identity. This story is written in the second person, which is done so well. The next story, which is from the point of view of his father, is also written in the second person, but it's the voice is so different because his dad speaks in a Jamaican patois. So it's written in this patois. And it's just so interesting to me that some of the stories he chose to write in the first person, some in the second person, even, you know, ones about the same character, he'll choose different points of view, but the, the voices are all so extremely vivid. His writing is really electric. You know, we find after Trelawney goes to, college in the Midwest. He goes back to Miami. He has a hard time with his English degree and he's graduating into the recession of 2008. So he has a hard time finding a job and he's homeless for a while. He works as a sort of manager at 
a retirement village. So there's a lot of funny stuff happening in there. Each chapter is just real individual, following the different members of the family as they, you know, go through their lives, deal with each other. There's a lot, you know, in the background of bigger societal forces that they're dealing with, as I said, the recession of 2008, but also things like Hurricane Andrew. There are, you know, natural disasters. The family has, you know, they bicker, they don't get along. They, the parents separate, you know, all kinds of things happen against this, the backdrop of what's happening in the world. And it's just incredibly engaging. I just want to read the first paragraph to you so you can hear a little bit of the voice. This is the first paragraph of the book. It begins with, what are you, hollered from the perimeter of your front yard when you're nine? Younger, probably. You'll be asked again throughout junior high and high school, then out in the world, in strip clubs and food courts, over the phone and at various menial jobs. The askers are expectant. They demand immediate gratification. Their question lifts you slightly off your pre-adolescent toes, tilting you, not just because you don't understand it, but because even if you did understand this question, you wouldn't yet have an answer. So that's how the book starts out. And, you know, Trelawney spends the rest of the book trying to figure out who and what he is. So I I recommend it highly. Laurie, that book sounds so interesting. It reminds me of a memoir I read that came out last year by Georgina Lawton. Um, It's called Raceless. And it explores really similar themes. I was thinking now I have to pick up this novel. Um, so Lawton grew up in England. Her mother was from Ireland. Her father's English, both white. And, you know, she was born into this family looking biracial. Like she clearly looked like a child with some black ancestry. Um, and a nurse in the maternity ward said, oh, it's a throwback gene. The Spanish <laughs> Armada soldiers, you know, or sailors <laughs> from the Spanish Armada were, were wrecked in Ireland and that's all it is. And so that was the story she was told. But, you know, when you go out into the world, you go to school, you go to your friend's houses. She heard racist comments. People assumed she was black and, and she's like, Oh no, no, I'm you know, half Irish with this <laughs> distant <laughs> Spanish ancestry. And then of course, you know, eventually, you know, there's so many questions. She took a DNA test and this, it sort of unravels all these family secrets. But beyond that, what's so interesting about the book is all the places around the world where she traveled and the ways she was treated very differently, mm-hmm. depending on where she was and how much people projected onto her and had expectations of her based on her appearance. So anyway, it's a great book. Yeah, that sounds really interesting and very similar theme. Lori's pick for the week is called If I Survive You by Jonathan Escoffery. Thank you, Lori, for that choice. Well, that does it for another episode of Fully Booked. Thank you all so much for joining us. Please join us again next week when my guest will be Carolyn Quinn, author of The Fortunes of Jaded Women, which our reviewer calls a funny, sharp, and insightful look at family bonds and the effects of tradition on modern life. You won't want to miss it, but until then, you know what to do. Turn this thing off and go read a book. Thanks for listening to Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. Check out new episodes every Tuesday at podcastone.com, on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe on iTunes.